2008, August 15th, it was a day I'll always remember because I, Jan and I, we sat in a hospital and um, we had a little baby boy born. He lived almost an hour. We got to hold him as he was struggling to breathe and, and was unable to do so. And so as that all happened over that hour, of course, there was a lot of tears. There was a lot of helpless feeling from Jen and I. Um, he was just coming too early. And so what we did is, is when we realized they told us, we went into the hospital and they said, you're going to have the baby here in a little bit. Um, so what we did is we prayed. And we said, now understand that we did not know the goodness of God like we understand Him today. We did not know that He wants to heal you. We did not know that He's not the one killing people off. We just attributed it all to Him, right? And so our prayer for little baby Jordan before he was born was that, Lord, if it's your will, then cause him to live. And if it's not, well, then I guess don't. In fact, we even prayed, we said, Lord, rather than him being alive and being like a vegetable because we force an issue, you know, we're just going to leave it up to you, Father. Either, either make it be he's, he's completely healthy and alive or you know, don't let him suffer. That, that was our request to the Lord. And so over that hour, of course, um, he did not survive. And so after, after they took him out of the room, we were devastated, and I remember lifting up my hands to the Lord and worshiping and saying, Lord, you're good, and I worship you. I said, Lord, this doesn't change anything about who you are. I still think you're good. So my heart was good, but my understanding was like way off, wasn't it? And we're going to look at a case study of that tonight, of a similar situation, but far worse. And that that wrong belief in the beginning can set the tone for just a whole bunch of mistakes to follow. How many know if you, if you have the wrong understanding about something, you'll make decisions based on something that's not even accurate. I remember when my children first uh, figured out my boys what sweating was. They were outside playing. Now, bear in mind, they'd had ice cream not long before that had melted and dripped. And so they're outside playing and suddenly they begin to sweat and they come running in the house and Adrian just full of drama, you know, he, he yells out, Daddy, Daddy, we're melting. <laughs> so a wrong belief, they, they were acting upon a wrong belief, right? And as, as, as comical as that is, yet it can hold very serious, very serious consequences when we believe the wrong thing about the Lord or what His Word says. And so in this series, that's what we've been doing called Healing is the Will of God. We've been examining reason after reason why we believe that it is God's will for you to be healed always, each time, every time. That we don't have to pray and say, Lord, if it's your will, we can be very solid and confident on knowing what God's will is and then pray in accordance with that. That phrase, Lord, if it be thy will, is, is been referred to by some others as a faith-destroying phrase. If it's your will. See, you can't be in faith, you can't be confident for something from the Lord if you're not sure He wants you to have it. And it'll destroy your faith for that thing. Now, Jesus 
he prayed according to your will, right? But that was different. He wasn't praying for healing. In fact, he knew what God wanted, what his will was, and he's saying, Father, can we do this a different way? I'd really like to be relieved of this thing. Then he says, I never mind. Nevertheless, your will be done. What's he saying? He's saying, you know what? Scratch that. Let's do it your way. And he is submitting himself to the will of the Father. And he doesn't end his pray with whatever your will is, Lord, just do that. Right? So let's not pray that way. If we arrive at a place where we're never sure what the Lord's will is, let's stop right there and let's find out what His will is and then go back to prayer and pray in faith for what we believe God wants and desires in the situation. Turn with me over to uh, the book of Job. And I'm going to do a little bit of review while you're going there. So over the last, um, well, not six weeks, but this is part six now. It's been uh, broken up with that series that we had here on the love of God. <clears throat> but we've, been, we've found ten reasons in the Word, scriptural reasons, why we believe that it is the will of God to heal everyone. Now, does everyone get healed? No. We recognize that, yet we believe it's God's will for them to be healed. And so we've been looking at reason after reason. Reason number one, I'm not going to give you the scriptures to these reasons this time. Um, you can go back and listen to the messages that came before this. They're on the website. They're free of charge. And in each one of these reasons, we broke down uh, Bible verse after Bible verse that lined up with what we were looking at. So reason number one was God's word is medicine. There's healing in God's Word. Reason number two is that a strong spirit will sustain you. We know it's God's will for everyone to have a strong spirit. And Proverbs tells us a strong spirit will overcome sickness. Reason number three, we believe that healing is the will of God for everyone today, is because of God's original creation. How He created it in the beginning was without sickness, so that's obviously what He intended and what He wanted. We also see uh, reason number four is that heaven and the new creation to come, the one He's going to create, is also going to be without sickness and death and pain and all those things. So we clearly see what the Father desires. It's not, if sickness was really something, a blessing from the Lord, well then He would have created heaven with sickness as well. Reason number six that we believe that healing is the will of God is because we recognize that sickness is a work of the devil. A work of the devil. We looked at scriptures on that. Actually, I missed reason number five. Reason number five is because of the origin of sickness. Sickness comes from sin. From sin. And it's a work of the devil. Reason number six. Reason number seven. is We believe that healing is for everyone is based upon His eternal names. In particular, Jehovah Rapha. Which means, I am God that heals you. And if He is the unchanging God that we know, then that means if His name was that, He's still going to do that. Amen. Right? So he's not, He hasn't changed from what His name is. Reason number eight that we believe the Bible tells us that healing is for everyone is because of the covenant of healing that He's made for us going all the way back to the children of Israel. And that we now have a better covenant. So last week, reason number nine, we had reason number nine and ten last week. Reason number nine was sickness is a curse. It's part of the curse of the law. 
right? In, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, you can go through and you can see all the sicknesses that are listed there. And it gives quite a gruesome list, right? And then it ends it with, oh, and by the way, every sickness that's not in this book and every disease that's not written here is included in this. So we see that sickness is a curse of the law. And then reason number 10, and this is, is my favorite so far, Jesus Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And you can find that in Galatians 3.13. It says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, Every, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So those were, are the ten reasons. And so then the question came up, some questions do usually come up, right? About healing. And yeah, but what about? Yeah, but how about this? Or... All these things. So we're going to try to answer some of those. And last week we asked the question, well, does God make people sick? And we answered that from the Word. We see that, um, you know, if, if you don't rightly divide the Word of God, you can come to assumptions that are incorrect. And we saw that um, God, He passes judgment that allows the destroyer access and the destroyer is the one that is doing the killing and the maiming and the, and the destroying, right? Making people sick. In fact, God is not our problem, is He? He's not our problem. You know, I use the example of electricity, that electricity is a great thing. Right now, we're benefiting from it. However, if you go and cross it and wind up zapped, and laying on the floor, does that mean electricity is bad? No. It just means you crossed it. You didn't use it properly. And you wound up hurt by it. 1 John 5.18 tells us this, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself. Everyone say himself. And the wicked one does not touch him. Does not touch him. There is a protection for you and I that makes so the wicked so you are untouchable. You're one of the untouchables, right? <laughs> so judgment is not the will of God for you or for anyone else. Just because God passes judgment doesn't mean that's what He wants. In fact, in uh, Lamentations 3.33, it tells us He does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. So when that comes, He's not willing for it to happen. Remember, we're discussing the will of God. Not does it happen, we're asking is it His will. Ezekiel 18.32 tells us, I take no pleasure in anyone's death. This is the declaration of the Lord God. So repent and live. See, He wants people to live. Even the wicked. He's saying turn from your ways. If you read that whole chapter, He says it repeatedly. Turn and live. Turn and live. He doesn't want to pass judgment. You know, to say that the result of judgment is the will of God would be to say that the, the sin that brought the judgment is the will of God. If we're just going to go victim to, well, this is what God wants, well, then He's the one who also made us sin. Well, we know that's silly. That can't be right. No, Satan's the one doing the destroying, not God. In fact, in Revelations, we looked at Scripture that tells us that Satan is called the destroying angel. The destroying angel. That'll bring a whole lot of light to you once you every time you read about the destroying angel in the Word. And that is part of Satan's name in Revelations. So then, the most important part of last week's sermon was the ending. 
how do we keep from being judged? How do we make so that doesn't happen to us? And in 1 Corinthians 11, 32, or 31, it tells us that we, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. So how do we judge ourselves? Well, with the Word and with the Spirit of God, with a humbleness and submitting yourself to the Lord, right? And, and then judge yourself and you won't be judged. So that's how you stay out of that whole mess. Someone say, hallelujah. hallelujah. You know, judging yourself is a, is a very, very precious gift that God has given to us. You can take care of it yourself. All right, did you find Job? The question, what about Job? What do we do with him? How does this fit into, is it God's will for people to be healed? And there is a lot of interesting things, much more than what we would have time for tonight, although we're going to spend probably most of our time here in Job. Um, there's so many misconceptions about, about this particular book, and there's also some, a lot of, of translating errors in this book as well. And um, Job is considered to be one of the oldest books, and so I find that fascinating. So Job here, uh, this, this, how many think, um, by raise of hands, how many think that this span of time that happened to Job was a number of years or a rather long time by raise of hands? Okay, a few hands. Okay, how many think it was less than a year? Raise your hand. Okay, more hands. How many think it was weeks? Okay, few hands. So let's just answer this question right away, and we're just going to uh, look, just go down through it. But in um, Job chapter 29 and verse 2, now this is quite a ways into the conversation he's having with his friends. And he makes a statement, he says, I wish I was like a few months ago. I wish I was like in months gone past when I was blessed by the Lord. If I could only be, here it says, if I could only be as in months gone by in the days when God watched over me. So he's referring to before all this calamity hit him. So that was only short time ago, right? Month, two months, three months, I don't know. But it couldn't have been very long. So we see here that um, this wasn't a long drug out ordeal. Let's look in uh, verse 1. There was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of perfect integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, some translations say he was perfect. It doesn't say perfect integrity. But the word perfect means complete. It doesn't mean faultless. It doesn't mean without mistake. It doesn't even mean without sin. Okay? Perfect here, and in, in actually if you'll look a little bit further into the original, and what the language means is really, uh, some of the translations, um, they bring it out that it means completely straight. The word integrity means straight. He was perfectly straight. He was completely straight. He was a straight shooter. Have you ever heard that? Man, they're straighter than an arrow. Man, there's no crookedness in him. A man of integrity, straighter than an arrow. He's, he'll shoot straight with you, right? So that's what they're saying about Job. And he feared God and he turned away from evil. So in verse 2, he had seven sons and three daughters. His estate included 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 
He must have lived somewhere near the desert. 500 yoke of oxen. Now, understand that a one, that's, that's a thousand cattle, right? But there's two in a yoke. And the way they determined yoke back then was one yoke of oxen could plow one acre per day. So he is, has the ability to plow 500 acres per day, which is just like astronomical for their times. 500 female donkeys and a very large number of servants. Job was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to have banquets, each at his house in turn. They would send an invitation to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Whenever a round of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them, rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned, having cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. Now, I don't know exactly what all they were doing and what they were up to, but later when you read in some of what his friends said to him, one of his friends talked about, your children have been wicked, and that's why this has happened. So maybe they had a reputation. <laughs> I don't know what was going on there, um, but that, that was mentioned. Also, um, if you'll skip forward to chapter 3, let's look at verse 25. Now this is uh, after everything has gone wrong, and we're going to read about it here in a moment. Job makes this statement in 3.25. He says, the thing that I greatly feared has overtaken me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. Now apparently Job had a fear that calamity was waiting for him, that it was off in the shadows just waiting to pounce on him. And even that, you know, like he did with his children, he's constantly, he's concerned about this. So I don't know if um, he was even aware of this, but we, we, he has his confession there. And we know that fear is a spirit, right? And if, if we allow fear in, that presence of that spirit is the open door to other evil, other evil spirits to come in. And so we are not going to yield to Fear, right? He has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, of power, of a sound mind. Yet here he is, and he's operating upon this fear, it seems like. Let's look in verse 6. You understand that fear is an open door. You know, it doesn't matter if it's um, fear about elections, fear about COVID, fear about anything else, right? Right? What you fear, you, when you fear something, this is exactly what you're doing in the spiritual realm. You are laying out a welcome mat and putting bait on it and saying, come, come, come. That's what fear does. It attracts the thing you fear. It is why it is so vitally important to recognize it as not just a feeling, it is a spirit. And to deal with it as such. Just like you would a spirit of lust or a spirit of hate or a spirit of anger. You're not going to let it stay. You're going to deal with it. Command it to leave. And in the times that we live in, right, there's all kinds of things that give you opportunity to practice that. Stay out of fear. Stay in faith, right? All right, let's look at verse 6. On one day, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Now understand that this is the first mention, I believe, of Satan by this name in Scripture. 
This is the first time he's called by this name. And and the word Satan here, it means the accuser or the adversary. Some translations just translate it that way, just call him the adversary. So he is the accuser. Do you know him as the accuser? Yeah, obviously he he is the accuser of the brethren, right? Verse 7 tells us, actually before I go further, Let's just look at this question a little bit. Wait, what is going on here that Satan is with God? How is this happening? Day, one day, Satan shows up. They just have regular conversation. What's going on here? Right? Isn't this weird? Um, Let's go look. Let's answer. We're going to come right back to this. Let's go over to Revelation 12. So in the book of Revelation, is full of Prophecy as well as symbolic things. And John um, sees in a vision a great sign appear in heaven. That's verse 1 in chapter 12. So this is something that's symbolic. I don't believe it's, it's still to come, but he sees this play out symbolically. So let's start down in, in, in verse 7. So what's happening is, is the baby Jesus is born. All right? And the dragon is upset about this. He tries to devour the child, all these things. Verse 7, and so then the woman flees away into the wilderness for like three years. Well, we know that Mary went down to Egypt for three years with Jesus. But now in verse 7, we'll begin reading. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought. But he could not prevail, and there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil, and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah have now come, because the accuser of our brothers has been thrown out. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. So here we see Satan is the accuser. We're going to talk some more about that a little bit later and how you and I don't want to be used by him in that way. But here he goes on. So verse 11, they conquered him. Talking about Satan. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives in the face of death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Now why would heaven rejoice? Because Satan no longer has access. But apparently back here at Job's time, Job's time was before this had all happened, right? So Satan still had access. So let's keep reading. It says, but woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great fury, because he knows that he has a short time. And if you look down in verse 17, so the dragon was furious with the woman and left to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony about Jesus. Well, that's us, right? So he is waging war against us. We are in a war. The good news is, if you just read a little bit further in this same book, you see we win. (laughs) All right, so we don't have to be afraid of it, but we can walk in confidence. So let's go back to Job. Hopefully that helps you understand a little bit that um, some things are different than they used to be, especially in Job's day. So in verse 7, the Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? Uh, From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. 
Well, doesn't Peter say that he roams to and fro throughout the earth looking for someone to devour? Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Now this is a poor translation. Uh, A lot of the literal translations will translate this differently. Let me read a few of them to you. Jehovah said to Satan, Have you set your heart on my servant Job? Because there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. That's the uh, literal translation. And then the Young's Living says something very similar. He says, And Jehovah saith unto the adversary, Hast thou set thy heart against my servant Job, because there is none like him in the land, a man perfect and upright, fearing God and turning aside from evil? So here we see that you know, Satan's heart and his thoughts and his mind, they are not somehow unknowable and unseeable by the Father. But Satan shows up and, and the Father is able to see right into his heart, see what he's thinking, see what's going on in his mind. And he's like, you know, you've set your heart on Job. And he, he calls him out on it. He has set his heart against Job is really how that translates So no one else on earth is like him. He's a man of perfect integrity or completely straight who fears God and turns away from evil. Now listen to Satan's response. Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Immediately he begins accusing. Accusations. Like, well, yeah, because there's something in it for him. Not only that, you... Are doing, let's just keep reading. Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, and everything he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions are spread out in the land. But stretch out your hand. Now he's trying to incite God against Job. Stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns, and he will surely curse you to your face. Job isn't genuine, he doesn't really love you. Come on, take away your blessing you've given to him and just see, he won't serve you anymore. He's accusing Job. He's accusing the integrity of his heart. He is accusing the Father. He's just an accuser. He says, you do this. You do this, is what he said to the Lord. Well, the Lord says, he goes, look, or see is the word, rather than very well, some translations say. He goes, look, the Lord told Satan, everything he owns is in your power. However, you must not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan went out from the Lord's presence. So everything he has is in your power. He says, look, see, see it. Apparently, he wasn't seeing it. Apparently, Job had, Satan had gone to Job and had spent quite a bit of time examining and watching him, looking for a way in. Otherwise, you know, why would he say to him, What you've put a hedge around him, you've blessed everything, you've kept him? It's obvious, yeah, he's been trying to get at him. He's tried this way and that way, and nothing's been working. So you're doing all that, you're not allowing, you know. And so now he, he makes this statement. He goes, well, everything he owns is in your power. So on, on, on verse, in verse 13, <clears throat> actually, before we go further, let's talk a little bit more about accusations. You know, Satan, he'll accuse you if you give him an opportunity. And even if you don't give him an opportunity, he still wants to accuse you. And what you do with that is vitally important for you and for your peace. 
You know, if you agree with Him, man, it goes downhill fast from there. So you have to resist Him. And when that thought comes whispering into your mind something from Him, man, immediately stop it right there in its tracks and go, no, no. In fact, hold your finger there. Let's go over quickly to Romans chapter 8, and then we'll come right back here. What about Job? Before this is all said and done, reason number 11 is going to be one of the reasons we believe that it's God's will to heal everyone is because of Job. Okay? So we're going to take that completely in 180 degrees. So look in, in Romans 8 in verse 31. Now, he had just got done saying how God has done all these things for you. Man, he justifies you. He predestinated you to serve him. All these things. Verse 31. So what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Well, that question is answered in the accuser. He is the one that's against us. So we have God for us. We have the accuser against us. Now, can he prevail? Not if we don't let him. In verse 32, it says he did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Look, he gave his most valuable thing for you. How would he not give anything else to you, he's saying, for your benefit, for your victory? Verse 33, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Well, we know the accuser of the brethren likes to try, but it's an accusation that cannot stand if you know who you are in Christ. It's an accusation that absolutely has no hold on you if you know that I am the righteousness of God in Christ. That He has made me to be righteous. That He has made me one of His. That I belong in the throne room of God. I get to go there boldly. None of these things are me that He's bringing against you. So who can, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Well, the devil. Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Now that's really, really good news for you and I when the accuser comes knocking. We have an advocate who is at the Father's right hand making intercession for you and for me. So when the enemy comes and he accuses you, don't agree with him. Don't take sides against yourself with what the enemy is saying. Right? But get on God's side about what He says about you. Alright, let's go back to Job. The accuser. Someone say, I am not an accuser. The devil will not use me to accuse. Verse 13. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and reported, while the oxen were plowing and the donkeys grazing nearby, the Sabines swooped down and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came. So he's not even done talking and telling him what happened. And here someone else comes. Another messenger came and reported, said, he says, the fire of God struck from heaven. The fire of God struck from heaven. It burned up the sheep and the servants and devoured them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, just take note right here. Already, the 
attributing these acts of destruction to God have already begun. Oh, it was fire from heaven. It was lightning storm, whatever it was. But we know who the one was that was behind it. It was Satan. It wasn't God. And yet they're saying fire from heaven. It's just like all our, you know, insurance agencies and news media. You know, they call things acts of God. And storms, they call it an act of God. No, it's not. The devil can affect the weather. So it burns up all the sheep and servants. I alone have escaped to tell you. In verse 17, that messenger was still speaking when yet another came and, and reported. A band of peaceful protesters came and raided the camels. Oh wait, I read that wrong. The, the Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels, and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. You know, Satan has one of his favorite techniques is a pile-up technique. Something goes really wrong for you, but not just one of them, like two or three or four of them. Like more than you in the natural have the ability to deal with. That's one of his favorite things is to pile things up on you. So be watchful of that. That's one of the ways to recognize if it is if it's Satan. There's, I'll give you several actually. When Times that you can identify when a battle is moved from the natural into the spiritual realm. And is, being, is coming. You know, there are things that happen in the natural like you stub your toe. And then there are things that happen that are not natural. They are supernatural. And they're from the enemy. Right? And they're designed to take you out. So one of the things he'll do is, is pile things up on you. Like all of a sudden, all at the same time. You know, how many times have we had something go really, really wrong at just the most inopportune moment? Like of all the times this was going to happen, it, it was at the wrong moment, right? We've all experienced that. And another, another time that you'll identify it is when things don't make sense. Like, how, how is that even possible for that to happen? That defies all odds. You know, that, that rock fell off the mountain and fell exactly on that person that was walking by on a little used trail at just the right moment. No, that's not accident. That's an, someone's taking you out. Or trying to. And then there is um, a third way to identify when a, something has moved from the natural into the spiritual realm is when the intensity of it really increases. You'll see it just go from a natural thing, natural resistance, natural problems, to suddenly the intensity way ramps up. And, and when you see those things, stop, identify, oh, what this is, and take authority over it. Deal with it. Don't just go on and try to muscle your way through it because you in your flesh are no match for the enemy. But you in the spirit realm are more than a match for the enemy. And then uh, last but not least here, sometimes to be aware of his attacks is right before or right after a great victory. That's one of his favorite times that he'll often attack is right before or right after something big. So here, let's look in verse 18. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported. Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Suddenly, a powerful wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on the young people so that they died and I alone have escaped to tell you. 
So Job, who was unmoved at the loss of all his wealth, all these horrible reports that just came piling in on top of each other, now it's his children, his family, gone. In one moment, in one day, he went from being the wealthiest in the land, well-known, influential, all kinds of wealth, huge happy family, and in one day, bam, to nothing. Gone. All that stuff gone. What does it say? It says, Then Job stood up, tore his robe, shaved his head. He fell to the ground and worshipped, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Praise the name of the Lord. See, he thinks the exact same thing I did when the devil stole our little baby Jordan. He's sitting here. He's not angry at God. He's not blaming God. He's not sinning against God yet. He will do that later. But at this point, he's not doing that, he just, but he thinks it's the Lord. He thinks God is the one who did it. In fact, in verse 22, it says, uh, throughout all of this, Job did not sin or charge God foolishly. So he wasn't, he wasn't angry, he wasn't arguing with him, all that will happen yet, but it hadn't happened yet. So go on to chapter 2. One day the sons of God came again to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you set your heart on my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man completely straight who fears God and turns away from evil. He still retains his integrity, even though you incited me against him to destroy him without just cause. Skin for skin, Satan answered the Lord. A man will give up everything he owns in exchange for his life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. What's he saying? He's saying everyone's got their price. Everyone's got their price. Job's price is his health. Just again, accusing. Accusing. Let's go to verse 6. Look, the Lord told Satan, he is in your power, only spare his life. Now verse 7 is a key verse. Everyone look at it. So Satan left the Lord's presence and infected Job with incurable boils from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. So who did it? Satan did it. Satan is the inflictor of this sickness upon him. Not God. Alright? Satan did it. Verse 8, Then Job took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. You speak as a foolish woman speaks, he told her. Or the word foolish is godless. You speak as a godless woman speaks. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? See, once again, he still thinks it's God. That God is the one doing this. But we just read the verse that says, Satan left, Satan did it. But he thinks it's God. It's like Job doesn't even realize the devil exists. He just thinks everything that's happening is God. Whether it's good or bad, it's God. In His sovereign, unknowable, unsearchable wisdom and mysterious ways, He has somehow seen fit to do this to me. Throughout all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. Everyone say, not yet. Alright, verse 11. Now when Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, 
Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite heard all these adversity that had happened to him. Each of them came from his home. They met together to go and offer sympathy and comfort to him. When they looked from a distance, they could barely recognize him. They wept aloud, and each man tore his robe and threw dust into the air on his head. Then they sat on the ground with him seven days and nights, but no one spoke a word to him because they saw that his suffering was very intense. How many of you would go comfort someone and sit there for seven days, a whole week, not say a word, just be with them? I mean, we're going to go on and read about his friends, and the temptation is to be real hard on them. But come on, I mean, all the things they're going to say came after seven days of just sitting with him in his misery. Seven days of not saying anything, just being with him. And, th- and they're going to go on and make some big mistakes here shortly. But we, you know, for, for you and I, if you come across someone that needs comfort, someone that's in extreme grief, there's two things they need from you. Aside from your prayers from God, but I'm saying you physically. Be there and let them know you care. That's it. That's what they want to know. You're there and you care. Don't go ahead and just say a whole bunch of foolish things. You know, in my short lifetime, I have experienced the sudden death of different family members in my extended family, and uncles and cousins and things. And um, some of the things people say are just phenomenally stupid as they come and think they're comforting you. And what's amazing even is how many times you end up, you're the one comforting them. Making them feel better about it. And they'll, they'll say some really stupid things. So, just a secret for y'all. When you're in that situation and you're the one coming to comfort, shut up. <laughs> a hug, I love you, I'm sorry, is probably enough. Okay? Alright. That was just extra. Alright, so seven days they're sitting there just with him. And then in chapter 3, Job, after this, Job began to speak and curse the day he was born. Now that doesn't mean that he was saying curse words. It means he is, he is blaspheming the day that he was born. He's speaking evil of when he was born. And he says, may the day I was born perish in the night when they said a boy is conceived. If only that day had turned to darkness. May God above not care about it or light shine on it. May darkness and gloom reclaim it and a cloud settle over it. Look down in verse 11 and 12. Why was I not stillborn? Why didn't I die as I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me? And why were there breasts for me to nurse? See, a lot of times when calamity happens, that's the question that comes to our mind is why? Why? Why me? Why this? Why that? And he goes on in verse 16, or why was I not hidden like a miscarried child, like infants who never see daylight? Verse 20, why is light given to one burdened with grief and life to those whose existence is bitter? He keeps asking this, these questions are behind the why. And he goes all the way down, verse 23, why is life given to a man whose path is hidden, whom God has hedged in? And then he 
It says, verse 24, I sigh when food is put before me and my groans pour out like water for the thing I greatly feared has overtaken me and what I dreaded has happened to me. I cannot relax or be still. I have no rest for trouble comes. So he's pretty down and out, isn't he? Why is this happening to me? Job's friends, they started out pretty good. Showed up seven days. They didn't end up so hot. (laughs) And um, Job and his friends, they begin to argue. Job makes this statement. His friends begin to talk to him one by one. They say something to him. He responds. Then the next friend tries. And then Job responds. And so then the third friend, there's actually four of them here, but it only lists three of them at this point. And then then the third friend responds. And so then Job answers that. And this just goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. For 28 chapters, they argue. Back and forth. I mean, and they they get pretty sassy with each other. Call each other names. Man, Job tells them, you guys are a bunch of miserable comforters. Another time he goes, man, you guys are a bunch of sorry doctors. And man, they give each other grief for all of this. And um, here's what they're arguing about. Job says God is unfair and unjust. That's what Job's saying. And he's saying God's unfair. I don't deserve this. He did this to me. He's unjust. He shouldn't have done this to me. I'm innocent. I haven't done any wrong. He's wrong. That's what Job's saying. Well, his friends know that's not right. So they also believe God did it. So they are trying to make sense of it. So they're going, no, God's not wrong. You're wrong. You brought this on yourself. You deserve this. You clearly must have done evil somewhere. You must have withheld someone's money from them. You, and they go down through this list of things, one by one, trying to convince him that, no, you brought it on yourself. And Job's like, no, I didn't. And they're like, yes, you did. Job says, no, I didn't. And they're like, yes, you did. 28 chapters, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Now, here's what's crazy. is They are accusing him. They are a mouthpiece for the accuser right now. His friends, they love him. They wouldn't come and sit with him for seven days if they didn't love him. Who sits with you in your misery for seven days without offering a word of advice? I'm with you. So they love him. They love him a whole lot. Yet, they have become a mouthpiece for the enemy by accusing him. Have you ever been accused? Or have you ever accused somebody? I'm sure we all have. So, that's pretty serious. We don't want to be used by the enemy, do we? To be an accuser of our brethren. Job here, he made... 74 accusations against God throughout these next chapters. 74 things that he said about God. Now, the way to read Job is from beginning to end in one sitting. Because you'll understand things a whole lot more. You get into trouble if you jump into the middle of the book and pick out a verse by itself and go, oh, this is truth. Actually, Job repented for saying that later, so maybe that's not truth. Was it truly said? Yes. Is the Word of God truth? Yes. Yet, he wasn't saying the Word of God. 
All right, so I'm going to just real quickly walk you through all 74 things, accusations against God. Well, first of all, we have already covered this one. The Lord hath taken away. That was in, verse, in chapter 1. He also said, uh, but we know that Satan did it, so we know that's not right, right? We covered that. He asked the question, should we not receive evil from the Lord? Well, James says that when we're tempted with evil, we should never say it's God. Number three, he says, God has hedged me in with calamity. That's in chapter three. In chapter six, he says, the arrows of the Almighty are within me and their poison drinks up my spirit. Now the Lord is shooting arrows at him, poisonous arrows. I mean, really, the enemy shoots flaming darts at us. Also in chapter 6, he says, the terrors of God do set themselves in array against me. He said, God scares me with dreams and terrifies me through visions so that my soul chooses strangling and death rather than life. That's in chapter 7. So he's having nightmares. So not only is his body afflicted, his sleep is afflicted. I mean, the enemy is just having a heyday on him. And he thinks it's God. You have set me as a mark against you. Oh, it's your fault that I'm against you now. (laughs) Sounds like Adam, right? It's your fault, Lord. You gave me the woman and she gave me the, the... The woman you gave me gave me the fruit. Number eight, also in Job 7. You do not pardon my transgressions. Is that the God we know? Number nine, he breaketh me with a tempest. Um, All of these next ones, I'll tell you when we change, are found in chapter nine. He says, he breaks me with a tempest. He multiplies my wounds without cause. In other words, he's unjust. He will not suffer me to take a breath. He fills me with bitterness. I mean, even the fact I'm bitter is now your fault, God. He destroys the perfect and the wicked. He will laugh at the trial of the innocent. Lord, laugh at the trial of the innocent. He has given the earth to the wicked. He hides the faces of the judges so they cannot discern right or wrong. So now, all these judges that are doing wrong out there, it's God's fault. If I made myself ever so clean, yet you will plunge me into the ditch. I can't be good enough for you is what he's saying. That was all in chapter 9. In chapter 10, he just keeps it up. It says, You oppress and despise me. You shine upon the counsel of the wicked. In other words, you're favoring them, the wicked. You know that I'm not wicked, yet you destroy me. So you must be unjust now. You have poured me out as milk and curdled me like cheese. If I sin, then you mark me and will not forgive me. Wow. You hunt me as a fierce lion. You renew your witness against me and increase wrath upon me. That was all in chapter 10. In chapter 12, he says, the tabernacles of robbers prosper. The robbers den. They prosper. And they that provoke God are secure into whose hand God brings abundance. So now God's blessing the evildoer but killing those that do good. Let's go to chapter 13. Now, we can't be too hard on Job because he has suffered immensely and he doesn't know that it's not God. You know, if, if 
we believed this about God, we, we may be saying some of this stupid stuff too. If we thought God was the one killing and destroying. In chapter 13, actually in verse 4 is where he calls them worthless doctors. You coat the truth with lies. You are all worthless doctors. If only you would shut up and let that be your wisdom. <laughs> I mean, they're going at it, alright? In verse uh, 15, even if he kills me, I will hope in him. Well, that's starting out real good. Even if he slays me, doesn't matter. I'm still going to trust him. I'm still going to hope in him. No matter what. Except he doesn't stop there. He goes on, I will still defend or argue or justify my ways before him. Even if he slays me, I'll trust him and I'm going to maintain my ways before him. I'm not changing. I'm right, he's not. Because he thinks God did it. You know, this verse is one that gets uh, quoted pretty often as, as a good thing. Even though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And that saying is good to have a heart of complete committal to the Lord. Yet, if you understand why he said it in the following line, he goes, even if he kills me, I'm not changing. That's what he's saying. Let's look in, uh, I'll keep going, number 27. I've only covered 27, there's 74 of them. You hide your face from me and count me as your enemy. You write bitter things against me and make me possess the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in stocks. That's all in chapter 13. Chapter 14, he says, you destroy the hope of man. Chapter 16, he has a long list of things. He has made me weary. He has made desolate all my company. He has filled me with wrinkles. Now even my wrinkles are your fault, God. <laughs> he tears me in wrath. He hates me. He gnashes upon me with His teeth. He has delivered me to the ungodly into the hands of the wicked. He has broken me asunder. He has taken me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. He has set me up for His mark like you would a bullseye. He set me up as His bullseye. That's what He's saying. His archers surround me. He cleaves my kidneys or pierces my kidneys. He does not spare me. He pours out my gall upon the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He ruins me like a giant. He has done all this for no justice in my hands. <clears throat> That's all in chapter 16. That sounds like he just described the destroyer, doesn't it? But see, he thinks all this destroying is coming from God. Do you see how deadly this is? To think that God did something He didn't do? This is why you and I cannot mess around with that. Oh, well, maybe the Lord's just working something out on our behalf. No, there's an enemy. He's trying to kill, steal, destroy. There is a God who wants to give me life and give it abundantly. As I said a week or two ago, and this was what I learned from Pastor Dale, was God is good and the devil's bad. And that'll just keep all your doctrines pretty much straight. Keep a simple theology. Alright, where were we? Chapter, okay, so 17, moving on. So this is number 48. He has made me a byword of the people. In chapter 19, he has a long list again. He says, God has overthrown me. He has captured me in His net. He does not hear me. There's no justice from Him. 
He has fenced up my way that I cannot pass. He has set darkness in my paths. He has stripped me of my glory. He has taken my crown. He has destroyed me on every side. He has removed my hope like a tree. He has kindled His wrath against me. He has counted me as one of His enemies. His troops raise up their way against me and encamp around my house. He has put my brethren far from me. He has estranged my acquaintances. Chapter 23, he goes, the Almighty troubles me. Chapter 27, he says, God has taken away my judgment. He has vexed my soul. Chapter 30, he says, He has loosed my cord. He has afflicted me. He has cast me into the mire. I cry to you and you do not hear me. I stand up and you do not regard me. You are cruel to me. You oppose me. You have lifted me up to the wind and have dissolved my substance. So what about Job? So they, they answered back and forth like this. On and on and on. Finally, along in about chapter 32, we see another young man enter the conversation. Now, at the end of chapter 31, it says the words of Job are concluded. He's like, I'm done talking. Verse 32, or chapter 32. So these three men quit answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Now, they were certain that he wasn't righteous. That's what they kept trying to tell him. But he would come back and like, no, I haven't done that, and 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 I've done this, and this, and this, and this, which was righteous. Yeah, well, I don't know. You did something. Something secret. Something you're not telling us. <laughs> Verse 2. Then Elihu, son of Barachel, the Buzzite, it's like a family of bees. <laughs> the Buzzite, I don't know. From the family of Ram became angry. He was angry at Job because he had justified himself rather than God. He was also angry at Job's three friends because they had failed to refute him and had condemned God. In other words, by their inability to refute him, now God is on the chopping block. Now, Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were all older than he. Sounds like a wise young man. But when he saw that the three men could not answer Job, he became angry. So Elihu, son of Barashel, the Buzzite, replied, I am young in years, while you are old. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to tell you what I know. I thought that age should speak and maturity should teach wisdom. But it is a spirit in man and the breath of the Almighty that give him understanding. It is not only the old who are wise or the elderly who understand how to judge. Therefore, I say, listen to me. I too will declare what I know. Look, I waited for your conclusions. I listened to your insights as you sought for words. I paid close attention to you, yet no one proved Job wrong. Not one of you refuted his arguments. So, the argument still stands that God's unjust, unfair, and that, of course, they, his friends think Job's a rascal, scoundrel somehow, brought it on himself. Verse 13, so do not claim we have found wisdom. Let God deal with him, not man. But Job has not directed his argument to me, and I will not respond to him with your arguments. Job's friends are dismayed and can no longer answer. Words have left them. Should I continue to wait now that they are silent? 
Now that they stand there and no longer answer, I too will answer. Yes, I will tell what I know, for I am full of words, and my spirit compels me to speak. My heart is like unvented wine and is about to burst like new wineskins. I must speak so that I can find relief. I must open my lips and respond. I will be partial to no one, and I will not give anyone an undeserved title. For I do not know how to give such titles, otherwise my Maker would remove me in an instant. But now, Job, pay attention to my speech and listen to all my words. I am going to open my mouth. My tongue will form words on my palate. My words come from an upright heart, and my lips speak what they know with sincerity. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Refute me if you can. Prepare your case against me. Take your stand. I am just like you before God. I was also pinched off from a piece of clay. Fear of me should not terrify you. The pressure I exert against you will be light. Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard these very words. Now he's quoting Job. I am pure, without transgression. I am clean and have no guilt. But he finds reason to oppose me. He regards me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He stands watch over all my paths. End quote. But I tell you that you are wrong in this matter since God is greater than man. And Elihu, he goes on and he shucks it on down to the cob and he just lays it out for him. And we see he goes chapter after chapter. Finally along about chapter 38. The Lord, see the Lord is speaking through him. The Spirit of God is on him and is speaking through him. And finally God is like, okay, I've had enough. Now stand aside, I'll just talk directly to him. I'm going to tell it to him straight. In, in chapter 38, verse 1 and 2, says, Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. He said, Who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man when I question you. You will inform me. And he goes on and all the way through to chapter 40, verse 1. Lord answered Job, this is he's still talking. He says, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who argues with God give an answer. He said, Answer me. So Job answers in verses three through five. He says, I am so insignificant, how can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not reply twice. But now I can add nothing. He said, I've spoken once and that was too often. I'm going to hold my mouth shut. So then the Lord begins to speak to him again, still from the whirlwind. He says, get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Would you really challenge my justice? You really think I'm unjust? (laughs) Let's go down to chapter 42. The Lord's still speaking. Finally, He ends in chapter 41 at the end. And let's see what happens in 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, and he quotes God, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, and he quotes God again, listen now and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. And then he says, I had heard rumors about you, but now my eyes have seen you. 
See, Job, even though he was perfect and upright, he didn't know God. Today, you have such a massive advantage over him. You have a personal relationship. You know the Almighty. You abide on the vine. Jesus, our advocate, our our person between us. I mean, at some points, Job was saying, man, if only I had someone to talk to God for me. Well, we've got that someone. Verse 6, listen to this. Therefore, I take back my words and repent in dust and ashes. So if anyone says, yeah, but in Job it says this, yeah, he repented for that. Right? He repented for it. And he was pretty sincere about it. He got dirty over it. Dust and ashes. Everyone say repents. Did you know there's room for repentance when you say the wrong thing? There's room. You can, you can repent. You can go ask forgiveness. Go a different direction on it. Verse 7, after the Lord had finished speaking to Job, He said to Eliphaz the Temite, I am angry with you and your two friends. For you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Well see, he's not talking about what Job said in all the previous chapters. He's talking about what Job said just now. I was wrong. You were right. I repent. These guys haven't done that. Apparently they're sitting there hearing this whole conversation take place and they're not saying anything. And he's like, you haven't spoken right about me like Job has over here. He's repented. Verse 8, now take seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. Then my servant Job will pray for you. I will surely accept his prayer and not deal with you as your folly deserves. In other words, not judge you. Not turn you over. See, when he passes judgment, that gives the destroyer access. For you have not spoken truth about me as my servant Job has. Then Eliaphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Now check out verse 10. When Job had prayed for his friends, it's at his prayer. It gives, if you really look at the tenses in the original, it gives the idea that during his prayer is when the captivity of Job was turned. Victory in prayer. It's during his prayer, when Job prayed for his friends, the Lord turned back his captivity. Some say restored prosperity, but the word means that he turned back his captivity. See, that Satan was the one holding him captive. Satan was the one inflicting him with captivity. And the Lord turned it back and doubled his previous possessions. Doubled his previous possessions. Starting to see what God's will is in these things. All his brothers and sisters and former acquaintances came to his house and dined with him in his house. They offered him sympathy and comfort concerning all the adversity the Lord had brought on him. See, his friends, they, these, all his family, they still think the Lord did it. Each one gave him um, a kestia. I don't know how to say that. It's a gold ear- and, and a gold earring. It's money is what the uh, margin tells us here. So, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the earlier. He owned 14,000 sheep. That's twice as many. 6,000 camels. 1,000 yoke of oxen. So now he can plow 1,000 acres a day. And 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. 
restored. He named his first daughter Jemima. You ever hear of Jemima's serp? It's not that. <laughs> it's not where it came from. But her name's Jemima. His second, Keziah. And his third, Karenhapa. No women as beautiful as Job's daughters could be found in all the land, and their father granted them an inheritance with their brothers. Job lived 140 years after this and saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. Then Job died old and full of days. Full of days. Now you see what God's will is concerning Job. Was it God's will that he go through all that calamity? No. No, that was the destroyer doing that. If you really want to know what is the point of Job, the book of Job, let's go over to James chapter 5. I suspect James had a, probably even a better understanding of the language back then than we do today, right? And he gave to us, inspired by the Lord, a statement here in verse 11 of chapter 5. He says, see, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So what's he saying? He's saying, you've heard how Job endured and the word outcome means goal. The goal of the Lord. The goal of the Lord. What was the goal of the Lord? To bless. Twice as much as he had before. To prosper him. He healed him. Obviously, he didn't stay with the boils on him. So reason number 11 that we believe healing is for everyone, he did it for Job. And he is not a respecter of persons. And even after all those horrible things that Job said about God, as soon as he repented, he was restored. He repented, he prays for his buddies, and boom, he's restored. What was the purpose of it? He says, to see the outcome from the Lord. That the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Great compassion. Very merciful. This is the God we serve. If God wasn't that way, He wouldn't have done that. That is who He was all those thousands of years before James. James says that's who He still is. That's what we're supposed to learn from that. That He's compassionate and merciful. Yet most people when they quote Job or when they say what about Job, they're referring to the calamity that came on Him. But James says no, that's not the point. The point is the outcome that came to Him. And that God is merciful and full of compassion. In fact, remember the context of James. He starts out going, if any of you have problems, if any of you have trials and troubles, be joyful, endure, have faith. And when your faith, he goes, that's your faith. When you're believing for something and it's not happening yet, your faith is on trial. It's being tried. It's being tested. And then he goes on and goes, um, in, in chapter 1, he goes, uh, verse 12, blessed is a man who endures trials. Well, Job had a few trials, right? Because when he passes the test, he will receive the crown of life that he has promised to those who love him. Well, we know that Job certainly received from the Lord. Verse 13, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted of God. In other words, don't make the mistake of Job. Don't think the trial is from him. 
And then if you'll look on down, he goes and don't be deceived about this in verse 16. And in 17, he goes, every generous act, every perfect gift, every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. And with him, there's no variation or shadow cast of turning. God is only good. That's what he's saying. God is only good. Don't attribute the evil that you've experienced to him. He's only good, and then later, just a little bit later in chapter 5, what I already read, he goes, remember Job, he endured. That's how he started this book out, saying, guys, endure. Endure. Stand in faith. Don't quit because the trial gets hard, and don't think it's God doing it to you. No greater is he that is in us, right, than he that is in the world. Let's go over to uh, 1 John. Well, I already read this in Revelation where he says, and they overcame him. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Yes. All right, let's go to 1 John chapter 1 and then 2. In verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. That's the complete opposite of what Job had said at one point, wasn't it? And to not only forgive us, but to clean us up. Right? Get rid of that, that, those grass stains on your jeans from where you had fell down. But He is going to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you'll look in, in chapter 2, He says, My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also those for the whole world. So if you're facing a trial, if you're facing a problem, if you're enduring something, I want you to do something, and that is, is use your mouth. Speak the deliverance that the Lord has declared about you. Agree with Him. All right? And then also use your mouth and rebuke the devourer. Rebuke the enemy that has come against you. Use the name of Jesus as though it belongs to you. Not as some magic incantation. Not as something we just throw on the end of our prayers. That way they have more oomph. But it's something because I am His and He is mine. I am operating in the earth as His ambassador, as His spokesperson in the earth. That's who I am. He has created and designed me to be His person in the planet and to do His work and to be His hands and feet. And so then when I use the name of Jesus, I'm coming from a place of ownership. That this is whose I am. It's on His behalf that I make this declaration. Alright, worship team, you can come. Stand with me if you would, and let's say some things. <clears throat> How many of you have a different perspective of Job than you did maybe earlier? Yeah. So the next time someone goes, yeah, what about Job? You can say, well, that's one of the reasons we believe in healing and in prosperity. It's because of Job. Let's just say this. Father, I am yours. I'm submitted to you. My mouth is submitted to you. To speak your sayings. To speak your word. I will not accuse. But I will give the spirit of life. With my words.
God, we bless you, Lord. We bless you. We exalt you, Jesus. Worthy is the name of the Lord. Worthy is the name of the Lord. Bless him, people. Bless the Lord. Bless him with your mouth. Tell him how good he is. Father, you are good. You are good in every way. You are worthy of exaltation. You are worthy of our song, Father. You are worthy of our praise and our thanksgiving to you. You are worthy for everything that we could give you, Lord. Thank you for making us your family. Thank you for making us yours. Thank you for calling us by name and redeeming us. Thank you for redeeming us from the curse of the law. Thank you for redeeming us from the curse of poverty. Thank you for redeeming us from the curse of sickness. Father, I rejoice in you. I'm so grateful to you, Lord, because you are good. There's no bad in you. You're just amazing to all mankind, Father. I bless you. I bless you. How many can say, I, I surrender my will to you, Father? Have your way in me, Lord. I consecrate myself to you. I'm at your service. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Let's sing a, a little bit of We Have a Savior, We Have a Healer. We have a Savior. We have a Savior. a king. We have an advocate. Thank you, Lord. You know, you have not been created by mistake or by accident. In fact, you were inserted into this time, into this season, into this late hour of this planet for such a time as this. We are not victims of this time, but we are prevailers of this time. Come on. We have a king. We have an advocate. We have, a, we have authority in the name of, his, of Jesus, of his son. So let's use it. Let's be bold as lions, right? Let's go out this week. Don't take no for an answer. But it's yes and amen in the Lord. All right, one way we love God is we love on each other here. So take the time, do that. Everyone is invited downstairs. We'll have a time of finger foods and fellowship there.
Good evening. <laughs> Welcome to Church of the Word International here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Glory to God. I'd love to encourage you in our worship time together by just sharing some of the characteristics or the very nature of your Lord God. Amen. In Psalms 111, I will exalt the Lord with all my heart in the counsel of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and considerate. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works. The works of his hands, they are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are steadfast forever and ever, done in faithfulness and uprightness. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. To him belongs all eternal praise. Do you believe that? Do you know that about your Lord God, your Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit? Well, let's all stand up together as family in this assembly. And let's just thank him for who he is. King of kings, Lord of lords, a faithful and just and good father. Amen. welcome you. We make room for you in our lives and in our hearts and in the atmosphere of this place. Have your way. Say that. Have your way in me. Have your way in me. Thank you, Father. Thank you so much. We love you and exalt you, magnify you. We give you all the glory and all the praise. You're so worthy of it. Well, one way we love God is how? by loving one another and we do a pretty good job here so turn to your neighbor and tell them I love you and I'm glad you're here tonight the children may be dismissed to their classes well good evening everyone wow <laughs> yeah that's good aren't you glad that we can have someone that we can completely rely on that we don't when we look out here and things seem 
you know, I don't know, topsy-turvy. You can look in here because the one that lives in here is solid. The one who lives in here is trustworthy. I had that in my heart too, Karen. It was interesting. Same Holy Spirit. The greater one is on the inside. It doesn't matter what's happening out here. Our, our trust is not in who runs the country or the economy or what's going on. He's the same. And if he lives on in the inside of you, then you can have peace no matter what's going on. So, well, we'd like to welcome anyone that's here for the very first time. If you're here for the first time, can you raise your hand right here behind? Well, welcome. We're glad to have you with us tonight. If you like, you can uh, put that information card, uh, fill it out if you like. Any prayer requests you may have, you can put that in the offering basket. All right. Um, anyone need a cash envelope for your giving? Raise your hand. The ushers will get one to you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5 here, he's talking about, it's leading into this, these um, great verses here in verses 6 and 7, but it, leading up to that, he's talking about preparing in advance your offering, preparing, arranging in advance your offering with a willing heart. In verse 6, it says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So we are in control of our harvest. Depending on what we're sowing, how much we're sowing, we're in control of our harvest. And this is the law, that, uh, this principle that operates in all of the kingdom of God. One of my children this week illustrated this um, principle in a humorous way, for me anyway. Uh, Adele was eating an apple, and so she comes to the seeds, and she's like, Ah, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go plant these seeds. I'm going to grow an apple tree. Okay, so she gets her little digger thing and goes out to the flower beds, and she's planting herself an apple tree. So she's all excited. Well, the next day, her sister reminded her that, uh, what about your apple seeds? Oh, yes, let's go see, you know, let's go see. And so <laughs> she goes out there and comes back in all dejectedly. <laughs> it's just nothing. Nothing came up. There's just nothing. And so I'm sitting here, you know, swallowing back a giggle and, and uh, trying to think how I'm going to say this and, you know, explain to her a few things. And she goes, well, but it's raining. I mean, she just kind of switched her perspective just like that. She goes, well, but it's raining, so I just know something's growing. <laughs> so, you know, you may not, that's the thing about the law of sowing and reaping. There is time, seed, time, then harvest. So we talked about that. And there's also, I mean, I was trying to explain to her about the ground, the conditions, you know, which is a whole other thing, but, you know, the seasons. So there's always seasons there. But this is the law that the kingdom of God operates on. What you sow, you shall reap. And it says if we don't give up, we will reap in due season. Verse 7 says each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So there it is again based on what's on your heart, willingly. You know, God loves cheerful givers because that's, that's out of a heart of faith, you know, out of love and trust. And it says here, verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, not most of the time, he's interested in you having whatever you need, whenever you need it, all the time, every time, 
so that you may abound in every good work. So that's the purpose, so that you have what you need, so that you can flourish and be in a blessing to others. That's his heart for you. He wants to see you blessed. He wants to see your needs being met. And that's just the heart of the Father. All right? So let's take a hold of our tithe and our offerings. Let's return that to the Lord. Father, we're so grateful to you tonight. We're thankful for our resources. We're thankful for the income that you give us. We're thankful that we can look to you to provide and that you meet every need. And so we gladly return the tithe with cheerful hearts, willing hearts. And I just thank you, Lord, that, um, that the harvest is brought into the accounts of the people in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. And the ushers can pass the baskets and the people will give to the Lord. I want to give a big thank you to all of you that <clears throat> came out and celebrated my turning 40 at the barn party. And um, I was so blessed and by, by all of you that took part in uh, writing in that book that Jen put together for me, as well as all the different gifts. And so many of you came up and, and uh, put things into my hands. I, I don't know if I even know who all it was anymore. Um, so I just credit you all with it. Uh, but you guys really, really uh, blessed me, and I want you to know that. So we were talking on the way to uh, church. We were talking about our anniversary was last Wednesday, and we were married now for 20 years. And um, I told her, you know, today marks the day that I am married as long as what I was single prior to being married. I got married three days after I was 20, so now the Lord has uh, blessed me with... I'm half and half right now, today. <laughs> Looking to expand on that. Amen? Also, I wanted to um, let you... Know, I was going to do this last week, and I forgot, and so uh, I want to try and make it a habit to do this when we have uh, special speakers come in. Um, but the offerings that we took for Brother Kurt and for his ministry, the, all those meetings while he was here. And so they were very blessed. Uh, we more than covered their expenses, right? And what we did is enable them to uh, go and do even more that the Lord is, is wanting them to do. So that was uh, a big blessing to them. And I know that the Lord is faithful to return those things unto you, wave upon wave. To increase your harvest, right? So someone say, he increases me. 